0: Yeah, we're going through Colossians. Anyway. All right, so once again, uh, let me begin reading in verse uh, uh, 15. And then we'll go to the next section, which is verses 16, all the way through the end of the chapter. Again, speaking of Christ, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his serious by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why? as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So last week, as we were dealing with verses 14 and 15, we almost got through 15, but I wanted to make sure that we got through one part of it, which is the last phrasing of verse 15, where after he mentions that he's disarmed the rulers and authorities and he's put them to the open chain, he says, by triumphing over them in him. So I'm going to read to you a historical uh, explanation of, of what he's speaking about, how it was used in history. And the reason why I want to go through all the detail of of what he's speaking of when he says by triumphing over them in him is so we can understand the sense of finality that Paul is trying to get at in helping these believers to really understand this new life they have in Christ and this new capacity that God has given them to live a life where they do not have to give in to the passions of the flesh, that these things in the world, whether it's the spirit of the age, whether it's temptations that come through other people, or even the, even the passions that rise up within us, that we really do have the ability to overcome those things, that they really don't have any power over us. As I said before, sometimes as believers, when it comes to maybe certain temptations, whatever our weaknesses are, sometimes we can be in a situation where it feels very overwhelming. But what we need to remember is It's not. Okay, there's a difference between something being truly overwhelming and something feeling overwhelming. They both feel the same. The difference is, if something really is overwhelming, you truly are, you truly cannot help yourself. You have to give in and do it. God has promised that when it comes to temptation of any kind, we never have to give in. No matter how overwhelmed we may feel. And that's, you know, that's where I've had some really long discussions with some individuals, especially in the jail, who have really struggled with addictions and that's understanding who you are in Christ. When you get that craving for whatever that whatever it is, it it can feel like you just have to give in and you don't. And I think just knowing that can be really very freeing. Now, it doesn't mean that you can overcome that temptation easily. Okay, so you want to make sure we're not you know we're not. People don't misunderstand that because sometimes what happens is because we're human beings, we're always looking for the loophole. We're always looking for something that uh, somehow gives us an excuse to do whatever it is we want to do. So an individual may say, "I know I'm a Christian." They don't. They won't say it out this way, but all these things are going on in their head. I know I'm a Christian, and but this just this is just I, I cannot. They they feed themselves the lies. I can't help myself, and they might even say. I've even asked God to help me. But what does that mean? In their mind, they're thinking that God helping you means that God's going to somehow inject you with superhuman ability to where you no longer want whatever that is. Now, God can do that. And God has done that with, with some. But most people, that's not what he does. He would give you just enough strength to be able to refuse. Just enough strength to refuse. And so you still, you don't have an excuse. And part of that is God bringing us along, helping us to mature, uh, helping us to be able to, um, I, I guess you would say, adapt and overcome. He's going to give us the assistance that we need. Um, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if you ever lift weights or anything, but you know when, a, when someone's trying to, to, to do a bench press and they're trying to see how strong they've become, and, and you try to figure out, you get right to the very edge of your strength. And so let's say that it's a, it's a, you know, I'm working with a teenager. He wants to be able to bench press 200 and he hasn't gotten close. He's been working for months and months and months and months and months. And so we get to the point that he, he thinks he can do it. So when he does it, when he, when he brings the bar down to his chest, when he starts to come back up, all I'm going to have is just my fingers under the bar. That's all, just the fingers. And I'm not going to touch that bar. I'm going to say, come on, you can do it, keep pushing and I might just tap it just a little bit, which is hardly anything, but the goal is I want to give him as little assistance as possible so I can tell him, you did that. Now, if I have to all of a sudden hook my fingers and <laughs> lift it up, yeah. then you know he failed, and that's okay. But the point is, is to be able to assure him that the safety net is there, if he fails, I'm gonna catch it, you're not gonna drop it. And so I'm ready. But we're right at the very edge. And, and once he makes it, he realizes he had the strength. He just, in a sense, needed, I guess you would say, that confidence that he could give it all that he had, no matter what, because it was going to be caught if he didn't. So I'm not saying that God does that all the time with us. But I think that a lot of times that happens. And if you think about it, if you, let's say a person was addicted to something. And let's say God was to completely bail you out every time. How much confidence are you going to have? You'd be thankful. But how much confidence are you going to have that you're actually growing? Well, you're not. Because he's always bailed you out. So, but when you get through other, other situations in life that are difficult... Because this is is the analogy they always try to make with sports. You work hard in sports, and there's supposed to be this translation in life, which sometimes there is. But the idea is, is, I know I can overcome this, because I've overcome this over here. And I know I have the strength, I know I have the ability, whatever it happens to be. And I know that God is not going to let me down. So, Paul really wants to encourage these individuals. And so, when it comes to this word, the word is triumphing. Okay, it's a, it's a strange word. We don't we don't talk about triumphing uh, over anything. Uh, but the idea is, is that Jesus uses, Paul uses the word, talking about what Jesus has done to make a public show or a spectacle that was made in a triumphal procession uh, when a general would come home victorious. And it was primarily, the picture here is of a Roman general. This is what the Romans would do. Uh, I'm sure you've seen on the news before Um because they'll show it on TV sometimes uh, in North Korea. There'll be a big military parade. And they have all their soldiers come out and march. And they may have all their trucks and trucks carrying missiles and all that to show the people how strong they are. We Hopefully you've seen the ones that the Russians do. That's a big, long parade. I mean, they've got all kinds of missiles and, you know, tanks and everything coming through. But the idea is to make a public show of this is who we are, this is what we have, we're powerful, we're strong. Well, the same kind of thing would take place in Rome, except that it would never be before a battle, it's afterwards. And so, let me kind of read to you, this, what I'm going to read to you is from John MacArthur, and he, he's put together this thing, he says this, triumph is a technical term, and it had a very significant meaning in the Roman world. The Romans had what they called a triumph. It was the highest honor that could ever be paid to a victorious Roman general. When the Roman government gave a general a triumph, that was the ultimate. Before any Roman general could be granted a triumph, he must have achieved certain things. He must have been the actual commander-in-chief on the field, not a secondary leader. The campaign that he engaged in must have been completely finished. The region which he was, which was conquered completely pacified and the victorious troops brought home. Furthermore, according to Roman history, 5,000 of the enemy, at least, must have fallen in one engagement so that it fell into the category of a slaughter. So there's all, these are just setting up all the rules because this, this parade basically was so significant that it was not open to just anyone. It wasn't open to just any general who went and conquered, you know, some little tribe somewhere. This had to be a major victory and a complete victory. And in one of the battles, you had to have slaughtered 5,000 of the enemy. They really glorified a lot of you know, death in those days, and that was part of it. Furthermore, as a result of the campaign, a positive extension of the Roman territory must have been gained, and not merely a disaster retrieved or an attack repelled. And the victory must have been won over a foreign foe, not a civil war. So triumphs didn't happen very often. In an actual triumph, the procession of the victorious general marched through the streets of Rome, all the way to the capital. First, There came the state officials and the Senate, always the politicians. So this is who's in the parade. So you got the politicians first. We're shocked by that, that they wanted to be in public and they wanted to get praise. There they are. Then there came the trumpeters who were heralding heralding what was coming. Then came the spoils taken from the conquered land, and they were carted along. For example, when Titus conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD, the seven branched candlesticks, the golden table of showbread, The golden trumpets were carried through the streets of Rome in his triumph. Then there came some painted pictures of the conquered land and some models of the conquered citadels and conquered ships. So they would literally employ artists to build little miniature buildings of of whatever they had destroyed, and they would parade these through the town. Then it was followed with the white bull, which was going to be offered as a sacrifice to the gods. Then there came the wretched captives, the enemy princes, Leaders and generals in chains, shortly to be flung in the prison and, in all probability, to be executed. And no matter how many they basically, no matter how many POWs they were were, were, man, they'd march them through. And if you were lame or you were blind or whatever, it didn't matter. You were you were marched through so everybody could look at you and see here's the conquered uh, individuals. And if you were like the general or if you were a king, they made sure you were dressed in such a way that people could tell who you were. You know, they, here's all the slaves, here's all the common soldiers. Oh, look, there's a general, ooh, that was their king. And, you know, so again, it's all part of this, uh, part of this big show. Then came what was called the lictors, or the punishers, uh, who were beating these people with rods. So you had torture going on during the parade. So, you know, you're, you're marching all these prisoners of war, and you got these guys behind them with these big, you know, big sticks just beating the heck out of them. And people are eating this up, and they're loving it. And again, that was just to show that we've conquered these people; we can do whatever we want, kind of a thing. Then there came the musicians. Uh, So you'd have, in essence, marching bands—not like our marching bands, but that's what you have. All right. Then, then there came priests swinging their censers with the sweet-smelling incense burning. So whatever gods they worshipped, there in Rome. they would have these priests, and they would be doing all the incense and all that kind of stuff. So, man, they got as many people into this parade as they possibly can. Then after all of that, the general came with a huge entourage. He was drawn by four horses. So he had this big, beautiful chariot or some kind of uh, ornate uh, cart, and there's four uh, horses drawing it, so we would not know who he was, that he was the guy. He's the mastermind. He's the hero. You know, he's the leader. So he was in a chariot drawn by four horses. He was clad in a purple tunic that was embroidered with gold and palm leaves and over a purple toga marked out with golden stars. In his hand, he held an ivory scepter with a Roman eagle on the top of it. And over his head, a slave would hold the crown of Jupiter. After him rode his family. And finally at the very end came the army wearing all their decorations, shouting, triumph, triumph, triumph. So you have this huge parade that was just this massive display of this victory that again enlarged the Roman territory and this individual is uh, being hailed as a great hero and a great warrior. So again, in all this massive procession as it moves through the streets of the city, all decorated and garlanded with flowers, and shouting all along the edge of the road, of course, there were mobs of people that were cheering. It was a tremendous day. It was a day that in the lives of most people, would only would happen once. And that's what Paul has in mind. So the idea there then is you have all of these enemies of God in the spiritual realm. And they're being paraded through the streets, so to speak, because they have been defeated. They are, there's nothing they can do. They have no weapons. They have no power. They are, they're they're completely useless in that sense. And Christ is behind them, the victor. And there's there's music playing and there's trumpets and everyone's cheering because there's no threat. There's no threat to anybody. Bringing the enemy soldiers there, there's no threat. They don't have any weapons. Uh, And so the idea is, is that... You know, whatever, again, whatever's going on, it's now over. The battle's been won. There's, there's nothing left. We've called the army home because there's just no threat. They've been completely decimated in every way. And so, again, what the Roman citizens, not only are they celebrating then this, this great general and all that's going on, but it adds, once again, to their feeling of safety. We live in Rome, the greatest city in the world. We are surrounded by our armies that are the greatest in the world, and our territory is expanding Look how, look how great this is for us. You know, that kind of thing. And so it would add all this confidence to those individuals. And that's the picture that Paul wants them to have. So then Jesus Christ, because of his work on the cross, he has canceled our debt. Remember that we are indebted to God. He owes us his wrath. We've, we've violated his law. Um, we've, we have violated his character, all those things. Um, and all of that has been paid for by Christ. Christ has defeated Satan. He's defeated the fallen angels. That's why Paul says again in Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 37, And all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, all that language used once again to really bring home what we have with Christ. What we sometimes, and this is what we have to, I think we have to remind ourselves of this uh, because it's easy for us to take a lot of these things that Paul says for granted. And that's because we've been raised in a culture where even if you haven't gone to church often, a lot of these things that we are, that's very common to us. But in these days, as, people, as these pagan religions were flourishing, the idea that the gods loved human beings, that was never a thing. The idea that you never had to be afraid of your gods, and the idea that you could have a relationship with your gods, and the idea that your god actually thought you were important, and that he would actually say he loves you, that, that was, no never heard of that before. That Christianity was so unique in that way. And it still is unique. You know, if you talk... Uh, um, I've read several things about Islam, and a couple of things that is interesting is that in Islam there are certain phrases you will never ever hear, and one of them is Allah loves you. Doesn't exist. The idea that Allah loves anything—it's not there. It's not, in their, it's not in their theology. It's not in the—it's not in the Quran. It's not there. We talk about God loving us. To them, uh, a, a, a Muslim who is immersed in their teachings would say that somehow that would make God weak because somehow that means that God needs you. God is not loving us because he needs us to love him. God is loving us because he's strong, because he's powerful, because he is the very definition of love. He's not obligated to love us. And he doesn't doesn't cry if we don't love him back. There's none of of that's going on. It's it's this one-way thing because of his greatness uh, and his majesty. But in these other religions, they don't talk about that. If you study Buddhism, which doesn't really believe in a god, but if you study Buddhism, there's no idea of love. In fact, in various forms of Buddhism, you're going to get this kind of a teaching, which is basically the goal in your life is to, is to get rid of all attachments. Okay? An attachment is anything that you that you hold on to that's important to you, because they would say that makes you weak, that makes you vulnerable. And included in that list is... Most definitely, they don't want you, they they, they would tell you you need to cleanse yourself from hatred. But you know what goes along with that? Cleanse yourself of love. Because what do we do for love? That's definitely an attachment. Do you know what I do for love? I do a lot of things for my wife. And I ain't doing it for you. Uh, But it's because I love her, because there's an attachment that's there, there's a commitment that's there that I've volunteered for, but at the same time I feel it's my duty and I'm compelled to do it, even though I want to do it. And so they would say, I I am then in bondage. Not in bondage, that's not how I would view it, but that's how in, in Buddhism, that's kind of the idea that is there, to get rid of all attachments, which means to get rid of hatred and to get rid of love. Uh, and so as you begin to look at all the various types of philosophies that are out there, uh, the idea of what we would call a self-sacrificing love, is not a part of today's philosophy. Even though everybody likes that, everybody, everybody thinks that that's an honorable thing, but it's not something that they're necessarily willing to be a part of. Um, and so, again, that's what's being, what's being stressed here and why this is such incredible news to these individuals that Paul is writing to. So even though we still do wrestle with the forces of evil, they cannot be victorious. The crucified, risen Lord of all does reign supreme in the universe, and to be united with him is to be free from Satan's dominion. So that's why, before we've talked about that, even when it comes to the threat of death, and we know through history, many tens of thousands of Christians have been killed And they're killed because they're christians they have many of them are threatened uh, by governments by armies by individuals with the goal of that individual either giving up their faith or renouncing their faith or whatever the case may happen to be because it is believed by all of these other forces that if if you know i have the power to take your life you will do what i want you to do in many cases it works until they get to the stinking stubborn christians and they can't get these stinking people to do what they want because they're not afraid of death. And there are stories of this. There's uh, some of the ancient martyrs. There's the ones who are more of the leaders. There's stories of things that they would, that they would say or pray. And there was one guy, I think it was Polycarp. Um, Polycarp was so long ago, I think he knew the Apostle John. That's, that's who that guy is. Polycarp was a guy that um, when he was, I think he was burned alive for being a believer. And so he prayed out loud as they were lighting the fires, and it was basically a prayer of thanksgiving. Lord, I I can't believe that you find me worthy to partake in the sufferings of Christ for your namesake. And he was thanking the Lord for that. What do you do with that? You know what the what the what the pagans are hoping is that you're screaming and pleading for mercy so all of the people who are following Christ would become afraid because you're suffering so much so they say oh I don't want to go through that but that's not what was happening. There's a it, it, you know, with the lady they call Bloody Mary she was, uh, became Bloody Mary was known as Bloody Mary because of all the preachers that she had killed which I believe the number was like 38 um, that she had killed and there are stories where again what they would do is they would, they would walk the, the, the preacher they were going to execute, they'd walk him through the town. You know, he's escorted by the police to, to wherever the place was they were going to burn him at the stake. Because they wanted it to be as public as possible. And it just never worked out the way they wanted it to. Because as the Catholics were kind of marching them down the road, what would happen is, is the pastor sometimes would start singing a hymn. And then the congregation was out there they singing with them. So now what happens is you have a guy being marched to his death, and they're all singing a hymn together. And so these stinking Baptists are just so stinking stubborn that now they're having basically church outside before this guy gets is, is burned to death. That's just not the picture that those who were persecuting them wanted to have. They what they wanted again was this screaming and yelling and crying and begging. So all these people would just run away from being Baptists and get back to the Catholic Church. That's not what happened. And it wasn't just one guy, it was several of them. Uh, there was one guy he was tortured a great deal and they wanted him to sign, I can't remember his name, but they wanted him to sign a confession where he was going to renounce Christ. And, and he was, uh, he, they had kept him awake for days and days and days and he was kind of delirious and he ended up signing uh, this one page. And then he just, he, you know, fall, fell asleep and when he woke up and realized what he'd done, he was, he was crying and he was, you know, he was, re, you know, just repenting of what he had done. He felt guilty and, They still brought him to trial, and he said, I I renounce what I did that was wrong. You know, I'm going to follow Christ and all this kind of stuff. So they take him to burn him at the stake, to make him an example. So they light the fire, and so he announces as loud as he can, my hand has defiled the Lord and and my God and my church. It must wither first. And he stuck his hand in the flames and didn't scream and yell while it was consumed with fire. And then he said, Lord, I'm ready to come home. And then he basically, I think succumbed to the smoke and knocked out and he, he died. I mean, there's tons of stories like that. And there's stories of people in Asia who've been arrested for being Christians, who they're, you know, they, uh, they, they refuse to curse their captors and their torturers, and they say they're praying for them. There's countless stories of individuals uh, when the Iron Curtain was up, as well as in Asia, where there were these soldiers who were involved in torturing these Christians, and after they were executed, uh, become overwhelmed with a sense of guilt, and they remember these things that these people had said, and in some cases were not only praying for them, but even praying for them while they were being executed, and said that they, that they cared for them, and they, wanted this, they, they said, I look forward to the day that you believe in Christ. I pray that you'll be with me in heaven. And then they died and where these individuals just just go almost insane because of what's going on and how many of them became Christians. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And so this is, and as I told you before, sometimes we think about that and it's easy to, because I remember I, when I used to read stories, a lot of stories about Christians who were martyred, um, I, I would have a, a sense of, of fear. Like, I I don't know if I would do that. like. Like, how long would I last before I renounce Christ? Five minutes? Five hours? I mean, I just—I I was convinced that there's just no way I could do that. But then as you get older and you keep reading the Scripture and you keep reading stories of what happens, as I told you before, the, the, the strength and courage you need, if, let's, say, let's say that's going to happen next year. The strength and courage you need to face that, you're not going to have now. But God will give it to you when you need it. Whether it's the day before, the day of, or what have you. You have it it'll be there and there's two there's thousands of stories where individuals will talk about this supernatural strength that God gives them uh, then there's another I'll just share this with you real quick not there's, there's a theory that this one Baptist minister I know has and he says he doesn't think it happened to all of them but he was looking and he was doing a lot of research on a lot of the individuals who were burned at the stake in England uh, for being Christians and he's convinced because of all the eyewitness accounts that God in in a very high percent of cases supernaturally um, helped those individuals to where they did not experience the pain of being burned to death. Whether God took them, he said he can't explain how it is, like how it happened, but he says it's too many times when there's too many eyewitnesses who keep saying no one screamed. No one. And he says being burned to death is horrific. The pain is insane, and nothing. And uh, and it wasn't just men that were. Uh, it was primarily men, but not only men. There were women and sometimes teenage girls who were um, either tied at the stake uh, or sometimes what they would do is they would tie them to a stake in, in the, uh, on the beach at low tide, knowing that when the high tide came they would be above their head and they would drown and they would give them an opportunity while the tide's coming in to renounce Christ, and they wouldn't do it, and they would end up drowning. Uh, it's just, uh, and then just in case you were unaware of it, uh, the Spanish Inquisition was primarily the Catholic Church killing Christians. They said looking for heretics, but it was Christians. And uh, in many cases, all the Christian had to do was just kiss the ring of the cardinal, or kiss the ring of the, uh, of the bishop, or kiss the ring of the pope just to show submission, and apparently they wouldn't be—they would not have been um, tortured to death. And um, the original—you can buy today a Fox's Book of Martyrs, but it's just a mass paperback. But that's not the original. I've seen the original. A friend of mine had the original. It's—it's it's incredible. It's three volumes. The books are about—they're about that tall. They're thin. They're all about that thin, but. When you open up the book, it's three columns, very tiny type. And in the original set, throughout each of the volumes, there's these fold-out illustrations of all the different kinds of tortures that they would uh, do to these individuals to get them to, to recant uh, um, their faith in Christ or their trust in Christ and, and turn back to the Catholic Church. And, I mean, they would literally, you know, uh, tying an individual to four different horses and having the horses to rip the the rims off. Uh, The Iron Maiden, the thing where they put people on, they would stretch them and pull their arms and legs out of joint. Um, uh, There were different things. They would turn people upside down and open up their guts. I mean, this is all kind of stuff they would do. Uh, and And so the majority of the names have been eliminated from Fox's Books of Martyrs, but the names that have been eliminated are primarily all those who are Christians who will put to death for that. Yes. So it was the Catholics mm-hmm. tortured the, the mm-hmm. And the Catholics believed in what, what were they trying to get them to? Relax? To be faithful, to be, because those individuals be were, folk, Yes. Be, yes. Okay. Yeah. That salvation was only through the church. Right. Okay. Um, you had submit to submit to the, the Pope. Okay. And most of these individuals were what we would call, that's what Protestants are. Uh, they believe that salvation is, believe in Christ and Christ alone for salvation and that we don't need to confess our sins to a priest we can represent ourselves to God because we are priests in Christ Um, and uh, that though we pursue good works we don't pursue good works to be saved or to stay saved we do so because we are empowered by the Spirit of God because we are saved and uh, so they would worship yeah they would worship illegally they would not worship at the Catholic Church They would not pay, uh, they would not reverence the various idols or icons or statues. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't pray to Mary. They wouldn't pray to the various saints. Um, They also taught that um, communion did not turn into the body and blood of Christ. Um, And they would not have their babies baptized. And then they would sometimes, or after, they would often, when a person who was Catholic became a Christian, because we would do the same thing. If you were raised Catholic, and you became a, a true believer, we're gonna baptize you. And if the person may say, well, I was baptized as a baby. And we'll say, well, that wasn't a baptism. This is why. Um, and this is Christian baptism. So in some literature, you find there, the, the Baptists are called the Rebaptizers. And in fact, there was even, a, there was even a, some clashes between Presbyterians and Baptists about that. <laughs> Presbyterians didn't like the re-baptizers uh, you know because they would say oh your baptism doesn't count because you didn't declare that you believe in Christ and so that caused a problem in a lot of ways but uh, all those things that were taking place then uh, the Catholic Church just they wanted they, they were demanding your loyalty to them uh, first and they said no our loyalty is to Christ and Christ alone it was so, was good to Jesus. so you can say that yeah yeah, yeah Mike is common knowledge, maybe this be a statement, but that praying is that pretty common or some Catholics do realize that or A it's common knowledge in a sense remember now there's, a, there's there are a lot of Catholics who don't know that because they don't really they don't really go to church, tr- they don't really pay attention. Some will say, Oh no, we don't pray to her, but we have a lot of honor and respect for her. Because I've talked to a Catholic who told me that before. And I said, well, I said, we respect Mary, too, but we, just, we certainly don't think that she was without sin. Um, and I said, the primary reason for that is because we take the Bible first and only as our authority for information on doctrine and all those things that follow some of these individuals. So, um, and then, of course, it depends if you're talking to a Catholic in America or if you're talking to a Catholic in another country. There's, there's differences. My husband grew up Savannah. He in Savannah. He was... Catholic is an altar boy mm-hmm. in church all the time. It was very grueling for him growing up. He doesn't mm-hmm. go to church now,
1: yeah. but they didn't have Bibles. They went math, they to Methodist. He yeah.
0: doesn't know the stories. Of us. They I, don't. I, I thought he did, and I would yeah. bring up a story where you know that he doesn't. Yeah, they're not they're not forbidden to read the Bible, but they're never encouraged to read the Bible. Right. Yeah, I just taught I talked to a young Catholic girl uh, two months ago in my office. And she went to Catholic school and all those things, and she has never read the Bible. Right. Yeah. I mean, she's never even opened it. Born raised, it yeah. Born yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Even the ones that say that they don't pray to Mary, they do because they do the Rosary look. Mm-hmm. and the Hail Mary. Probably. Yeah. So, you do know why they pray to Mary, right? No. Anyone? Anyone understand why they pray to Mary? No. Okay. this, this, is, the, this is the logic. So the logic is. Is that if you come to me, and so you come to me and you ask me to, uh, to do you a favor, I, I may say no. But, if you know my mom, and you get my mom to ask me, I'll probably say yes. So the idea is, is that you appeal to Mary, who will appeal to, you've heard this term, the sacred heart of Jesus. And so sometimes you have paintings where there's Jesus, and they have that heart, and with the shining lights, and there's a lady kind of like maybe touching his chest or whatever. So that's Mary appealing to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And so you have a greater, it's not a guarantee, but you have a greater chance of getting what you want because yeah. how can Jesus say no to his mother? That's kind of, that's kind of wow. the logic that's there. That's, awesome. that's yeah. Well, of course it is. But, I mean, that's... And you've heard me say this before, but there's been a, lot, there's been a, uh, a, a movement which has been going on now maybe for at least 60 years, maybe more. And that movement is to, to have the Catholic Church officially announce that Mary is co-redeemer with oh, Jesus. No. So the idea is, is that Mary's suffering, because she suffered watching her son suffer, that her suffering has redemptive value. And so... It was her suffering and the sufferings of Christ that save us. Now, no pope yet has done that. All the popes so far have refused to say that. Um, and I don't know if one ever will, but that's, that's a movement. And that was, uh, Mother Teresa was a big part of that movement, just so you know. She, really? Oh, yeah. She was a big part of that. Remember, no, she's Catholic. Yeah. Staunchly Catholic. And so, be held accountable Yes. Be held accountable. Yeah, I know. Okay. Okay. Uh, Verse 18, Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. So, Paul says in light of all this, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished in it together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So, when he says that no one disqualify you, what he's talking about there is He doesn't want someone to come along and move them away from the gospel and believe in the gospel. Don't let anyone do that to you. How are they going to do that? Well, these individuals are going to come along. They're going to insist on you doing certain things. So the idea here is insisting on asceticism. The idea is that you need to be giving things up. Like you need to take a vow of poverty or whatever it happens to be. The idea is is that if you're giving these things up, whatever they are, you're showing God that you're serious. You and the idea kind of, they don't say it this way, but basically the idea is, is that I give up for God, God does for me. Now, God doesn't play that game and God doesn't do that. There's nothing we can do that where God owes us anything. That's, that's what that's getting at. But you know that asceticism is very appealing to people because we want to feel spiritual and feel like we're doing something. And if we feel like we're doing something, we feel better about ourselves. It can damn you to hell, but you're going to feel better. And so it's very appealing to people. Um, but then he says this. He says, and worship of angels. So what's interesting about this phrase, worship of angels, is in the word worship, there's, in the Greek language, there's this idea that this is voluntary. So what, what that means is this. Is that this individual, or these individuals that are enticing you, they're taking delight in devoting themselves to worshiping angels because worshiping angels to them reveals that they're really humble the idea is I'm I am I have such great reverence for God I, I'm not coming to God I'm gonna to go to his angels because I don't deserve for to be in the presence of God to demand anything so I'm going to go to the angels and ask and plead my case with them and show them reverence and kindness, and, and then they can put a good word in to God for me. So that's what that is. You know, it's kind of like uh, uh, if you ever watch any old movies, whether it's like King Arthur or whatever it happens to be, you have individuals who, who are coming uh, to ask for a request, and they'll say, well, the king, the king will see you. Oh, I'm not worthy to see the king. I'm just a humble man, I'm just a farmer, I'm nobody. Why would the king want to take all day with me? But you, sir, he delights in you, and I have great respect for you, and perhaps you can represent me. So what will happen is, is you go there and say, well, I, I met this farmer, great guy. That's because he's feeding your ego, and he's just convinced that, you know, he's just a small little girl, you know, guy, he's not, he's not the leader of a village, he's not the king of a country, and so he doesn't want to bother you, and, and he just wants this. That's, that's, that's that kind of fake humility. But remember, the God of the universe says, no, I want you to come to me. I've I made provision for you to come to me through Christ. All right, so there's this idea that we're, that we're not good enough. Well, first of all, no one's good enough. But we have access because of Christ. All right? um, imagine, ima- imagine this scenario. Imagine you have children and your wife is always telling you what the kids want. And one day you say, you know, I've noticed for the past six months, the kids never ask me for anything. They're always asking you and you're asking what, what's going on. And your wife says, well, the kids just feel that they're not really good enough to ask you anything directly. How would you feel? How about you, but I would be both upset and hurt. Yeah. Yeah. My, wait a minute, my own kids? They're afraid to come to me? Something's wrong. Like, what have I done to make them think that? That that's never true. They're my children. You know, that kind of thing. So that's, you know, but that's, that's what's going on here. And that's what he means by this, uh, is this, you know, fake kind of humility. Uh, one one uh, person said this, humility, when it becomes self-conscious, ceases to have any value. So if you're conscious of your own humility, you're not humble. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like someone saying, you know, been working hard on this humility thing for a long time I think I got it <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah the probably first conclusion is no you don't have it <laughs> all right then he says this going on in detail about visions so what he, so he's describing what these individuals are doing so so I guess the idea is this some guy claims to have a vision but they can dissect it and they can go through all of these things uh, details about whatever it is that they're seeing or what the vision's about, and that kind of puffs them up, you know, look, look how great I am, I have this incredible vision, and all these things, and all these things mean this, and it means that, and so the idea is by then by going into detail, it's I guess the idea is to show that they're having visions and you're not, and their visions are great, and they, but they kind of get so caught up in themselves that they're, they're really caught up in, their own, in the details of all of that. Um, and so that's just what he says about them, that they're, that they're, they're you know, they go on in the details and it says they're puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So all these things, the worship of angels, the asceticism, and going into detail about visions, all those things feed their ego. It puffs them up. Right? so it's a false spirituality. And so he's basically saying you need to be careful of this for two, for two reasons. One, so you don't become like that but also so you don't become enamored with people that are like that. This is what's going on. And he says, they're public without reason, meaning there's no viable, justifying reason for them to think better of themselves uh, in the way that they are. There's no reason for it, because there's nothing there. You know, it's, it's, uh, um, it's like some guy saying, yeah, well, you know, I, I, was, I was the best basketball player in the league when I was in fifth grade. okay (laughs) good for you (laughs) that means what nothing right. it's just that's just ridiculous you don't have a reason to somehow walk around saying that you are the best imagine if you walk into somebody that had a big trophy room (laughs) and so you go whoa man you're a great athlete oh yeah this is when I was the MVP in fifth grade (laughs) and this is when I was the MVP in sixth grade and I was the MVP in seventh grade three years in a row Okay, (laughs) I'm now no longer impressed. (laughs) Kind of a thing, but that's 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 what he's getting at. All right, but he says why? He says that you're up without reason by his sensuous mind. So the word sensuous does not always indicate sexual. Right? It's not necessarily eliminating that. But sensuous is the person is very much in tune with his flesh, with his passions, and that's what pride is. Right? That's why you oftentimes we can tell when a person is arrogant by body language, right? It's very, they're very sensuous. Just a simple thing. You, you talk to a guy and he's always doing this. Yeah, well, you know, when I went to school, I had an <laughs> argument with my person. You know, they, this idea of their nose being up in the air, that's a real thing. Not everybody does that. We, you know, we can we can be arrogant in different ways, but we, you can see it. it it's, it's, it's really sometimes hilarious to see that. I've, I've met a few guys that are like that. I just... But I don't laugh out loud. <laughs> it's just, but it's, anyway. Now, whether you like Trump or not doesn't really matter, but he's that way. You ever watch Trump, watch his Biden language? Yes. Like, he's an arrogant dude. right? Now, I believe Obama was incredibly arrogant as well, but he had a different way of doing it. He was, he was pretty cool. <laughs> he had a cool way of doing it, but he did. All right, and, and just so you know, I don't know of any president who wasn't arrogant. Man, you've got to have a big ego to be president of the United States of America. Because you always got to talk about yourself and what you've done and how great you are. Is this how it is. Um, doesn't mean they're all bad, because they're not. But that's how it goes. Anyway, so he goes on. All right, so so they have no reason to be puffed up. This, this takes place because of the sensuous mind, which would be the opposite of having a mind that's in tune with Christ. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head. So you know who the head is? Who's the head of the church? Jesus Christ. So that's who they're not clinging to. Okay? Okay. And what's important about that is it's the head, as he says, from whom the whole body, which is the body of believers, the body of Christ, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So again, the idea is that they are not connected to Christ. They're not holding on to Christ. They're not lifting up Christ. It's about them and about their visions, which is about them. And it's about their aestheticism, which is about them, right? When you, if, if you're going to brag about all the things you've given up for the Lord, who are you bragging about? You, because of what you gave up. Look at, Look at my sacrifice. You know, this is, this is how spiritual I am. You don't say it that way, but that's the message that you're trying to portray. And that was a big deal because, again, in the days of Paul and all these pagan religions, that's what all the pagan religions were about. What could you do for the gods through bribery or what have you to get them to do for you? It was all what? Self-effort. All of it. I've got to find a way to appease the gods or to make them jealous or something or do something great so they think I'm worthy of whatever I want them to do. And when it comes to Christianity, it's the complete opposite of all of that. We're told from the very beginning, oh, by the way, there's nothing you can do to impress me. There's nothing you can do to make me do anything for you. God wants to do those things for us because he is good and he loves us. And it pleases him to do those things. So it's, it puts everything on its ear, so to speak. But that's what Paul is emphasizing with these individuals so that they don't get caught up in that. And today, people, they, we, we, we're susceptible to that. There's, throughout my entire life, I've always talked with believers, sometimes when they're going through difficult times. And I, I've even heard people who've been believers for a long time. They're going through something difficult—a disease, or maybe something, something in their family—and they will sometimes, in a moment of weakness, the truth comes out, and they'll say, "You know, sometimes I don't get it. I've just done so much for God." <laughs> oh, uh-oh. You know, and at, at sometimes, most of the time, at that moment, you can't say anything because they're not, not going to be able to hear it because whatever they're going through is very difficult for them. But you can hear their heart where it's at. What they're thinking i've done for god or i've given for god and this is how he rewards me like somehow in their mind god is beholding to them and so we got to make sure we don't go there it can go you can go there easy um you know I, i i heard i've heard tons of guys in jail tell me this that man all i know is you know when i when i first got arrested ever since i was out waiting for trial man i went to church every sunday for what I said, so I asked one guy this, I said, so you're telling me that when you got arrested two years ago, you knew your trial was going to be in two years, you never missed a Sunday of church, he was, I never did, and somehow, in your mind, you were thinking that if you never missed Sunday, that, that God would somehow owe you, he said, well, you know, I, I guess, I go, and now you're telling me that this omniscient God didn't know that, that he didn't know that that was the reason why you were going? And maybe wouldn't count that actually against you? Well, when you put it like that, <laughs> I said, so God knew you were being a phony and you're coming to church, that you weren't coming because you love him, because you wanted to worship him. You were coming to get something from him, but he had no clue. And, and now he hasn't come through for you the way you want, so now you want nothing more to do with him. And I would say God knew that all along. And what God's waiting for is for a genuine change of heart. There's also, and that's, there's also those that are waiting for the bomb to drop because they've done so many horrible things and then they will say it and you yeah. know, like I feel inadequate a lot, but I dealt with a few individuals that it's gonna you know, there gonna be punishment for me cause yeah. waiting for the bomb to drop, but that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh. So, but the main thing is we just have to be careful that we don't slip into that, and we can do that sometimes when you, if you feel, when, you know, we go through a lot of things that are stressful. If we don't handle them the right, the right way. You know, our mind can just kind of wander. Uh, we can begin to feel maybe a little saddened when it comes to uh, what I would call a spiritual sadness. There's this this maybe a disappointment. So remember, there's nothing wrong with wanting God to do certain things, and I don't think there's anything wrong with actually being genuinely disappointed. They say God did not heal your child of whatever. But there's a huge difference between disappointed because it didn't happen and being disappointed because you think God's failed you. Because God doesn't fail us. And that now there's hard things in there. That's why one of the things I try to remind people to do is one of the one of the important reasons why we need to grow as believers is so when when we go through those kinds of difficulties, we don't go through that kind of a spiritual failure or malaise where our difficulty is made worse because we're not in tune with the Lord. So if we're growing as believers, it doesn't mean that when we go through those times that it hurts less, doesn't mean that. But there's a difference in our resolve, a difference in our demeanor, a difference in our level of sadness, a difference in in our ability to handle whatever because we're in tune with the Lord and we have this understanding of life which again part of that is is that we understand this life is really is not all there is there really is more to our life and living than just this and if life really does move on and continue then it's, it's not ending with our death and so even though i'm saddened by certain things that happen i don't despair because i know it's not over and so all these things are going to come into play, uh, but they come into play uh, on a regular basis as we grow as believers. When we don't grow, we're, just not, we're not ready for those things. And then we go through, not, so we not only go through a difficult time because either we have cancer or someone in our family has cancer or whatever the case happens to be, we also go through a more difficult time because we're struggling spiritually. You know, and people will say this, I, I don't sense God, I don't see what God is doing. That just makes it just all I, all. I can tell you is that makes your pain worse, to make it worse, because now you're you're blaming God, thinking He's abandoned you when none of that's happened, and uh, that makes it hard. Because I have a really hard time sometimes hiding what I'm thinking because it comes through my face, you know. Because I just like come just sitting there like, you know, just, I just I don't want you am know, not because I want to encourage that individual, but now it's so much more difficult because. You're accusing God, you're accusing your God and my God of something he can never do. He is incapable of failing us. He's incapable of that. He's incapable of making a mistake. He, he's incapable. And even though we don't understand it, this is what is best. And I don't like it any more than you do. And I'm not just saying it because it's easy for me because I'm not going through a hard time. But the bottom line is, is, that's reality. And we're unable to... Embrace that because we're not embracing the Christian life when things are going well and growing as Christians. So that's why read the Bible, study the Bible, pray with (laughs) believers. Come and we worship together and we learn together and we mature together. And along the way, because we will go through varying levels of difficulties, we are being prepared even now to go through those things, to deal with those things, and and to move on as we move closer to glory uh, and spending all of eternity with God in really uh, a a fantastic new world, new heavens and new earth, which is going to be just fabulous. And again, just so you know, when we live in all of eternity with God, the Bible talks about a new heaven and new earth. People always want to know, what's that going to be like? Well, it's going to be like this earth without the curse of sin. Right, so you're not going to be floating in clouds. All right? you're, not going to be, you're not going to have wings and a harp. And you sing the same song for 100,000 years. It's not going to be that. You're going to be living on earth. New earth. No curse of sin. All I can tell you is you think this place now is great? Because there are some great places. I grew up in one called Hawaii. It's awesome. That's nothing compared to what it's going to be like. It, words can't even describe So so it's it's a reality of what we are going to possess as believers. Um, And so, and that is to make a difference. And it does make a difference um, in our lives as Christians. So next week, uh, we'll start in, we didn't get done with chapter two, but we actually covered five verses. So we did really well. Um, We'll start in verse 20 uh, next week and move on from there. Let's pray. Yes, we will. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your kindness to us and again for the encouraging word from Paul in Colossians. We thank you, Father, again for all that Christ has accomplished for us. Because, Father, we know this new life that you've called us to live, is, it's a difficult life because it goes against what's normal. But, Father, you have defeated the enemy. You've given us the strength of your spirit. You've given us the hope of Christ. You've given us your word and your spirit to guide and direct us. So, Father, we ask you to help us to avail ourselves of all that you've given us. That again, Father, we may live this life with its ups and downs in the joy of the Lord. So keep us safe as we go home. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.